Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of and may barely recognize. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Paul Gauguin. Now let's begin our story about Paul Gauguin. Life being what it is, one dreams of revenge, is a famous quotation from the French painter Paul Gauguin. It seems to perfectly sum up the life of an individual who was perpetually angry at somebody. But the complete quote also includes the phrase, and has to content oneself with dreaming. Written in 1903, only months before Gauguin's death, it must have been an acknowledgement by the painter that he would never achieve the recognition and success that he chased for an entire lifetime. Alienated from his family, living on a remote Polynesian atoll, and in constant conflict even with the modest authority figures of this environment, his quest would soon come to a lonely and bitter end, a fitting conclusion to the life of one of history's most famously alienated and enigmatic artists. From his very first days, Gauguin's life was filled with a volatile instability that must have affected his development. He was born in Paris on June 7, 1848. His father, Clovis, was a journalist, his mother, Aileen, the daughter of Flora Tristan, a seminal feminist writer of the early 19th century. Aileen's father had been imprisoned for the attempted murder of Flora, an indication of the chaos surrounding Gauguin's immediate family. Flora Tristan died in 1844, and in 1847, Aileen married Clovis and soon settled down to married life and the birth of a daughter in 1847 and Paul in 1848. But the political unrest of Paris forced the young family to think about heading into exile. Clovis, an outspoken liberal opposed to the impending restoration of Louis Napoleon as the eventual Napoleon III, decided that staying in France would ultimately result in his political persecution. Aileen's mother had prominent relatives living in Peru. In fact, much of Flora Tristan's life was spent unsuccessfully pursuing what she felt was her rightful inheritance from the landed gentry on the maternal side of the family. To this economically uncertain destination, the family set out on a grueling voyage in a twin-masted ship. So grueling, in fact, that Clovis Gauguin dropped dead of a heart attack off of the coast of Argentina. After a hasty funeral, Aileen continued on to Lima and her relatives. The patriarch of the family, Pio Tristan Moscoso, was Aileen's mother's uncle and was surprisingly hospitable to the daughter of Flora Tristan whose iconoclastic writings caused the family considerable embarrassment. Paul Gauguin was 18 months old when he arrived in Peru. He would remain there until the age of seven. The anticipated tyranny of Napoleon III never materialized, and political unrest in Peru and the disposition of Aileen's deceased husband's father's estate brought the family back to Orléans, France, and the household of her former husband's brother, Isidore. Still, this brief childhood experience would perpetually allow Gauguin to proclaim himself in his own self-aggrandizing words both a savage from Peru and a descendant of a Borgia of Aragon, viceroy of Peru. Gauguin found the provincial life of Orléans 
so dull and unfulfilling that at 17, after several years of secondary school education, he decided to join the Merchant Marine as a seaman and soon found himself en route to Brazil and various other international destinations. He would remain a sailor until the age of 23, emerging from this experience as a full-grown adult, physically stronger and more self-confident. His mother died in 1866. In her will, she left him a few modest possessions and the admonition to get on with his career, since he has made himself so unliked by all my friends that he will one day find himself alone. Through family connections, Gauguin's career took another surprising turn. Following the disaster of the Franco-Prussian War, the French economy suddenly experienced a financial boom that established the French stock exchange as a thriving economic concern. This financial market, housed in the Paris Bourse, became a place of employment for Gauguin. A prominent relative of his mother secured him a position within one of the numerous brokerage firms of the stock market. Although Gauguin is frequently described as a stockbroker, in fact he occupied more of a back office function, reconciling stock purchase settlements in a role more suited to an accountant. How he was able to transform himself from sailor to this white-collar occupation indicates an innate intelligence and adaptability, if nothing else. Reasonably well-paid, Gauguin shunned the typical cafe socializing of his associates and spent his evenings sketching, an interest he developed while at sea. On weekends, Gauguin would visit his sister, who lived with his wealthy maternal relatives in the Parisian suburb of Saint-Cloud. These relatives, the Arosas, were avid collectors of modern art, and Gauguin would have been exposed to some of the most contemporary paintings of the period. It was at the home of Gustave Arosa that Gauguin, in November of 1872, met two female guests traveling from Denmark. One of these women, Meta Sophie Gad, was immediately attracted to Gauguin, and a year-long courtship began. Meta was no great beauty, but all accounts indicate that she had a great deal of personality and a practically masculine outlook that could handle the rough edges of an ex-sailor. A year later, the couple would be married and Meta would rapidly become pregnant, Paul's stock market employment providing a comfortable lifestyle. Their first child, a son, Emil, was born on August 31, 1874. Emil was named after a friend and co-worker of Gauguin's, Emil Schuffenecker, an Alsatian who shared Paul's ever-increasing interest in art and painting. Through Gustave Arosa, Gauguin also met the early Impressionist Camille Pissarro, one of several struggling but eventually monumental artists. Although his domestic life would proceed with the birth of a daughter, Aileen, in 1876, he would spend most of his free time socializing with some of the other future giants of Impressionism, Manet, Monet, Renoir, and Degas, engaging in café discussions where he was tolerated as an amateur painter with money to buy the as yet unappreciated work of these pioneers. For several years, Gauguin was able to maintain both his stock market employment and artistic progress. The expansion of his family, with an additional two children, necessitated a move to a larger home. But it was no accident that this dwelling also contained a room that became Gauguin's studio. By 1880, through his friend Pissarro, Gauguin was able to exhibit examples of his work in an Impressionist exhibition. But instead of pride, his wife was becoming alarmed by a hobby that was becoming all-consuming. Meta had no use for shabby, literally starving artists like Pissarro, who she believed to be a dangerous distraction from Gauguin's need to provide for his growing family. Even when his first artistic breakthrough, Study of a Nude, 
drew critical acclaim from his artistic peers, his wife became even more hostile, especially since the nude in question was the family nanny. Despite a fifth child in 1883, Gauguin made a typically impulsive decision. He would quit his brokerage job and paint full-time. He didn't exactly take this occupational risk all at once. He would work until the end of 1883 and could return to his position at any time. But still, this was, especially for his wife, a shocking and outrageously irresponsible course of action. Although the option to return to work was meant to reassure Meta, he had no intention of ever returning to the bourse. He would make as much money with his art. Of that he was convinced. Gauguin joined Pissarro in the French city of Rouen. Cheaper than Paris, Meta and the children joined him in a town he believed would soon be overwhelmed by his brilliant talent, and it was only a matter of time before the cash would roll in. But he couldn't have been more wrong, and he and his family did not even last out the year. Gauguin was willing to give up on Rouen, but not on his art. Perhaps out of a sense of desperate self-preservation, Meta convinced him to relocate to Copenhagen. At least there she knew her family would take her in. Gauguin believed that the Danish city, unfamiliar with Impressionist art, would be the perfect place to introduce this new artistic approach, and he the perfect messenger. His in-laws by now considered him to be utterly irresponsible and inconsiderate, especially because they knew who would eventually have to pick up the tab for the family's necessities. His family's disapproval and his wife's shame and acidulous tongue lashings were enough to force Gauguin to find gainful employment as a French manufacturer's representative, selling of all things tarpaulins and canvas blinds. He barely spoke to the gads, despite living under the same roof, and the feeling of contempt was mutual. Very quickly, Gauguin began to look forward to leaving Denmark and returning to Paris, where he believed his artistic recognition and fortune was merely a matter of time. In May of 1885, the inevitable occurred. After violent arguments with both his wife and disapproving sister-in-law, Gauguin left Denmark and returned to Paris. With the exception of his young son and favorite child Clovis, he left Meta and the rest of the family behind. Meta correctly anticipated that her marriage would fail and her husband would not support her and would remain obsessed with his devotion to his art. Paris was a little more hospitable to Gauguin, but barely. He survived on handouts from friends, could not sell anything, and received constant complaints by letter from Meta. Privately, she discouraged mutual friends from helping him, hoping that eventually he would have no choice but to return to gainful employment. But Gauguin dug in his heels. He left his son with his now-married sister and knew true hunger and deprivation for the first time in his life. His situation did little to add to his already disagreeable and unpleasant disposition. He became desperate enough to even try to find a job at the bourse, but his strange appearance and embittered outlook was evident and put off any potential employers. By the winter of 1885-86, he was living on bread crusts so that he could still provide his son with at least modest nourishment. Finally, in May of 1886, he was prominently featured in yet another Impressionist exhibition arranged by Pissarro, and this time he was able to sell some of his work. He installed his son at a pension and decided to again leave expensive Paris to stretch his money as much as possible, this time in a small village in Brittany, Pont-au-Vin. For the French, Pont-au-Vin was a small port town with a few mills serving an industrial purpose. Initially discovered by American and British artists as an inspirational backdrop, Gauguin was one of the first French painters to take up in the village. Referred to a sympathetic pension owner, Madame Glonac, Gauguin spent the summer of 1886 refining his craft 
and serving at the center of a small group of avant-garde artists who tolerated his expansive opinions on art and life in general. At 38, Gauguin was the oldest member of this eccentric community and practically an elder compared to most of the other artists in the town. It was in pont that Gauguin would meet Émile Bernard, another talented cutting-edge impressionist with a Parisian reputation. Unlike Gauguin, Bernard had wealthy family connections that were still financially supportive, waiting for him to outgrow his youthful artistic aspirations and ultimately settling on a serious career. He was also more formally trained than Gauguin, having studied in an atelier in Paris, one of the many art schools that had sprung up to instruct the numerous aspiring artists of the time period. Gauguin was standoffish and paid little attention, even when Bernard mentioned a talented fellow student, Vincent van Gogh. Gauguin couldn't have cared less about another aspiring painter, but he did know the name van Gogh. Vincent's brother Theo was well known in Impressionist circles as a manager of an art gallery and one of the first in the Parisian art world to enthusiastically exhibit and sell Impressionist paintings. Gauguin stowed this information away for future reference. Unfortunately, as the summer dwindled, the expats returned home and the French returned to Paris. Gauguin had received plenty of encouragement in pont but he didn't sell a thing and it was clear that Brittany was no place to spend the winter. Gauguin returned to Paris, dreading another cold season that did prove to be dreadful. By March of 1887, in a letter to his wife, who still occasionally sent money, he proclaimed, My sufferings have passed the limit of human endurance. His sister Marie, worried that he would become an economic burden, encouraged him to consider working with her husband, Juan Uribe, who was attempting to exploit commercial opportunities in Panama concerning the attempted construction of a canal. Initially, Gauguin refused the offer, but as time wore on, the concept of returning to the tropics, a place where he could live on nothing and be left in peace, began to take hold. If he couldn't make it, he assumed he could always tap his brother-in-law for money. If Panama didn't work out, he believed that the Panamanian island of Taboga was another possibility. Without warning, in April 1887, he decided to leave Paris. To his wife, he proclaimed a familiar theme. I am going to Panama to live like a savage. I will take my colors and my brushes, and I will rebaptize myself far from humankind. Gauguin had convinced a fellow Pontovin artist, Charles Laval, to make the trip with him. The sketchy plan called for the two to find work among the various canal construction projects. Gauguin believed that his brother-in-law would get him involved in more sophisticated financial employment and didn't think he would ever have to resort to such menial undertakings. There was also the matter of his son, Clovis, who Gauguin had sloughed off on his friend Schaffenecker and who he now implored Meta to retrieve to Copenhagen. She ignored his letters and requests, so he at least got his friend Schaff to agree to look after him until he returned. Gauguin was stunned when he went to Schaffenecker's house for a last goodbye and found Meta there, intent on returning Clovis to Denmark. Her unannounced visit certainly put her attitude towards her husband in perspective and made for some awkward conversation. It must have been a melancholy train ride to the port of Saint-Nazaire, where Gauguin would board his steamer to the New World. Predictably, this scatterbrained scheme resulted in a harrowing outcome. While a great deal of effort and money had gone into plans for a canal, the project had resulted in numerous chaotic and disorganized enterprises with various outfits attempting a disjointed assault on the isthmus. Wretched conditions and the threat of malaria ensured that only the dregs of Europe and the Americas would attempt to find employment in the various shanty towns that had sprung up along the canal's work sites. The city of Cologne, where Gauguin and Laval landed, was a rat-infested hellhole without even the basics of civilization or hygiene. 
The two Frenchmen immediately decided to proceed to Panama City, where Juan Uribe was supposedly running a successful business involving finance of some sort. The reality was far more mundane. Uribe was the owner of a general store, selling goods to anyone who still had the money to buy. Having already lost a great deal of capital on investing in the construction of the canal, he was barely surviving himself. Gauguin and Laval then set out for the island of Taboga, figuring that this might be the remote paradise where they could live and prosper for next to nothing. They were wrong. They quickly found themselves back in Cologne, trying to hustle up gainful employment of some kind. Gauguin, based on his former employment as an accountant, was able to find work briefly with one of the French engineering firms trying to build the canal, but this job only lasted a few weeks before the firm gave up and laid off its entire staff. Gauguin and Laval had enough money to sail to Martinique, a more pleasant French island territory in the Caribbean. It was here that they would eventually realize their dream of living for nothing in one of the abandoned shacks in the tiny settlement of Le Carbet, a few miles from the larger, prosperous city of Saint-Pierre. Gauguin was able to get some painting done, but there is little record of what he did for the six months that he spent on the island. In fact, there is little left of the city of Saint-Pierre. In 1902, a remarkably violent eruption of the nearby Mount Pelé wiped out the bustling city and most of its 30,000 inhabitants. Gauguin would literally live off of fruit that grew in the vicinity of his hut, a diet that probably contributed to the dysentery, malaria, and other tropical afflictions that affected him throughout his travels in Panama and the Caribbean. In November of 1887, Gauguin was back in Paris. He had earned passage by signing on as a seaman on one of the many ships that traveled between France and Martinique. Once again, he prevailed on his friends for money and a place to stay. To the familiar circle of impressionists, some new faces had emerged, a patrician dwarf named Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, and the brother of Theo van Gogh, Vincent, made Gauguin's acquaintance. The latter even proposed that they leave Paris and begin an artist's salon in the south of France, in Provence, where they could create in peace and tranquility. Even for the impetuous Gauguin, this scheme seemed ridiculous, especially in light of the moody and erratic personality of Vincent, who also didn't impress him with his artwork. No, Gauguin already knew that he would head for Brittany to Pont-Auvin. He would not even wait for the summer, arriving at the familiar pension of Madame Glonek, now a devotee who accepted an occasional canvas in lieu of payment for both food and lodging. Gauguin also had some cash generated by sales of paintings by Theo van Gogh. Madame Glonek knew of Gauguin's growing reputation within the artistic community and sensed his presence would attract other artists during the busy season. By summer, these artists did materialize, with Gauguin the center of this group that historically would be identified as the pont school, a cadre of groundbreaking impressionists. If Gauguin was to retain his place of prominence among some of these upstarts, he would need to break new ground, which he did with his Vision After the Sermon, Jacob Wrestling with an Angel. This painting, with its surreal elements, pushed Impressionism in even more radical directions and has even been critically described as the birth of modern abstract art. Typically, when Gauguin tried to donate the work for display in a nearby church, it was adamantly refused. He still attached a great deal of importance to the painting, and when he consigned it to Theo van Gogh to be sold, he attached a price he knew was too high, a clear sign that he did not want to sell. With the summer ending and the inevitable dispersal of the pont group back to Paris, Gauguin was forced to ponder his next move. Usually his decisions would be dictated by money or the lack of it, but this summer produced a situation that had badly wounded Gauguin's substantial ego and pride. Emile Bernard had brought his sister Madeleine with him for the summer. Even at 17, Madeleine Bernard was a stunningly beautiful woman, 
and Gauguin was immediately smitten in a fashion that hadn't occurred since his breakup with his wife. But not only did Madeleine reject his advances, she became deeply involved with Charles Laval, a romance that ultimately would lead to the couple's engagement. Gauguin's extreme vanity would not accept playing a spectator's role in this relationship, and he decided not to return to Paris at all. Vincent van Gogh had spent the summer writing to all of the artists of Pontauvin, imploring them to participate in a colony in Arles, where he had already relocated. Gauguin repeatedly put him off by claiming that he would have to wait until he sold some paintings and raised the money to pay off his debts in Brittany. But when Theo van Gogh sent him some money and promised more if he would merely agree to join Vincent in the south of France, Gauguin acquiesced. The overjoyed artist sent him a remarkable jade-green self-portrait dedicated to Mon Ami Paul and typically began to fixate on when Gauguin would arrive or if he would even show up at all. Thus, the stage was set for one of the most notoriously tragic incidents in art history. Unfortunately, the only account of the next nine weeks was written by Gauguin years later. His description of events ascribes much of the blame for what happened next to Van Gogh's deep neuroses and disorganized persona, and he took no responsibility for Van Gogh's ensuing breakdown that would begin the final downward spiral of Vincent's life. Gauguin's train arrived at Arles on October 23, 1888, at 5 o'clock in the morning. He was unresponsive to Van Gogh's overly solicitous demeanor. Perhaps he was disappointed by the yellow house that would serve as their residence and studio. Certainly the sloppiness of Van Gogh's housekeeping would have alienated the fastidious Gauguin. After viewing the recent works by Vincent, Gauguin must have sensed that the insecure artist would have loved any sign of approval or encouragement. Instead, Gauguin said nothing. In typically domineering fashion, he immediately implemented a crude system of household budgeting, placing any available cash in a box and then noting the reason for subsequent withdrawals, that the two most frequent notations would be for tobacco and numerous visits to nearby brothels did not bode well for the future stability of this living arrangement. Although Gauguin typically was far too proud to resort to paying for sex, their visits to such locales would allow him to interact with other human beings and escape the incessant chatter of his manic and emotionally needy roommate. Vincent had also become pathetically infatuated with a particular inhabitant of one of these maisons de tolerance, one Rachel. Van Gogh could tolerate the domineering and dismissive personality of Gauguin, but it seems that the tensions between them started to develop over their distinct attitudes about the immediate future. Van Gogh had hoped that Gauguin would be the first of many artists who would make their way to the Yellow House, fulfilling his dream of a permanent artist colony. Gauguin would routinely speak of the trips he would like to take to exotic destinations in Africa and Asia, an indication that his stay in Arles would be anything but permanent. Vincent initially greeted these revelations with nervous agitation and ultimately outbursts of anger, especially if he had been drinking. Unable to handle alcohol well to begin with, his drink of choice was typically absinthe, a substance bound to upset his already tenuous grip on stability. In his own words, Van Gogh described their personalities— between the two of us, he like a volcano, I boiling inwardly, a struggle of some sort, was inevitable. A terrible rainy season ensured that Gauguin and Van Gogh would spend most of their time shut up in the yellow house, unable to paint outside. They spent much of their time in philosophical discussions that ultimately became hostile, Gauguin condescendingly dismissive towards all of Van Gogh's opinions, especially when it came to art. When they were able to paint, Gauguin rarely acknowledged Van Gogh's talent, instead continually lecturing him on how to improve his work. Their social interaction revolved around drunken binges with Van Gogh's only friend in the town, the postman, Joseph Roulin. 
behavior that would have undermined any possible domestic stability. It was not long before Gauguin would awake in the middle of the night and find Vincent silently staring down at him. A sequence of events in late December brought about Gauguin's inevitable departure. As the weather kept them painting indoors, Van Gogh returned to his familiar motif of sunflowers. Gauguin painted a portrait of Vincent at work. The result horrified and angered Van Gogh. It is certainly I, but it's I gone mad. That night at a cafe, an argument culminated in Van Gogh throwing a glass of absinthe at Gauguin, who dragged him home and put him to bed. Although Van Gogh tried to apologize, Gauguin responded by saying he could no longer stay because he might respond to such future outbursts by strangling Vincent. He spent the rest of the day, December 23, 1888, packing up his possessions and ignoring his distraught roommate. According to Gauguin, after their evening meal, he left the house briefly to get away from this uncomfortable scene. Walking across a nearby square, he suddenly turned to see Vincent rapidly approaching him, a straight razor in his hand. Of course, all it supposedly took was a stern look from Gauguin to send Vincent skulking back to the yellow house. Regardless of the truth concerning this encounter, the tense atmosphere was enough to prompt Gauguin to spend the night in a nearby hotel. Early the next morning, Gauguin returned home to a chaotic scene. The house was thronged with police and curious bystanders. As he made his way past blood-stained towels and more blood on the staircase, Gauguin was confronted by a police investigator who asked what he had done to Van Gogh. Vincent was curled up in his bedroom, his head swathed in makeshift bandages. Gauguin was not sure if he was dead or alive, but luckily Vincent was merely unconscious and Gauguin explained that he had not been present when Van Gogh was injured. The police let him go. He immediately proceeded to summon Theo Van Gogh by wire. Vincent's brother arrived to take charge, and Van Gogh was placed in the local insane asylum. The exact sequence of what transpired after the alleged confrontation between Gauguin and Van Gogh will never be known specifically. At some point, Van Gogh used the razor on his earlobe, wrapped the severed result in newspaper, bandaged his ear haphazardly, walked over to his favorite Maison de Tolerance, and requested that his package be delivered to Rachel with the admonition to guard this object carefully. Upon receipt of the mutilated body part, Rachel fainted, police were summoned, and it was not long before Van Gogh, already a locally acknowledged oddball, was located in the Yellow House. Gauguin had met Theo's train when he arrived at Arles, and he would return to Paris with Vincent's brother, but he would refuse any future requests by Van Gogh to meet with him, and the two artists never saw each other again. Eighteen months later, on July 29, 1890, Van Gogh would die in Auvers-sur-Oise, France, from a self-inflicted gunshot. Again for Gauguin, it was back to Paris. Again his friend Schaffenecker would take him in. This time Gauguin would repay Emile by painting a portrait of the entire family, a perhaps too honest rendition of a cross Madame Schaffenecker portrayed at three times the size of her husband, who appears practically servile. It didn't go over well. Even so, Schaffenecker was more enthusiastic over a bit of guerrilla marketing that the Impressionists were planning around the upcoming Exposition Universal, the international fair that would reveal the Eiffel Tower to the world. Traditional academically trained painters would be exhibited as an officially sanctioned part of the exposition. Characters like Gauguin would not be on display. But the industrious members of the avant-garde would not be denied. Emile Bernard convinced a café concessionaire with a restaurant on the exposition's grounds to allow an exhibition of artwork upon the structure's walls. Eight artists participated, and the exhibit prompted quite a response. The public, having acclimated to a Monet or Degas, not sure what to make of this exhibit. 
Still, the paintings caused a critical splash and brought more interest to the likes of Paul Gauguin. Already bored by Paris, Gauguin looked to return to Brittany and was fortunate enough to be introduced by Theo van Gogh to another Dutchman, Meyer de Haan. Clearly, Theo was not upset with Gauguin over the Arles incident, possibly because he had lived with his brother for two years, an experience that literally forced his hospitalization. De Haan was a successful businessman who had decided to pursue painting instead. Gauguin agreed to take him under his wing as long as De Haan paid the bills. They set off for pont but by June, Gauguin was already disgusted by the now overcrowded tourist destination. The word had gotten out, so Gauguin went to a more remote coastal village a few miles away, Les Poldoux, a town with perhaps a few hundred residents. There he painted and talked of his desire to leave France for various remote spots, a military posting in Indochina, a house on Madagascar, when the inevitable huge check finally came in, Martinique perhaps, anywhere but Paris. The winter months descended, Dehan's money and the rest of their artist associates disappeared, and the gray gloom and stormy weather of the rugged Breton coast brought Gauguin to an emotional bottom. Never have I been so discouraged as now. Nothing to do but wait like a rat on a barrel in the sea. Gauguin would beg train fare back to Paris and escape these dreadful surroundings, but the cycle between the French capital and Brittany would continue. He inevitably received word of Van Gogh's death in the summer of 1890. His responses were typical. In a letter to Bernard, he stated that Vincent's death was a great deal of luck for him, the final end of his sufferings. He discouraged a memorial exhibit of Van Gogh's, maintaining that it would only promote the opinion that Impressionism was produced by the insane. In October 1890, in a bizarre twist, Theo Van Gogh would suddenly telegraph him in Brittany with word that money for an escape to the tropics was forthcoming. Subsequent news brought the overjoyed Gauguin back to reality. Theo's telegram was the result of dementia, driven by the onset of syphilis. He was now even more infirm than his brother. There was no sale and no money. More importantly, one of Gauguin's most supportive benefactors would disappear, dying in an asylum only six months after the suicide of Vincent. With the death of Theo van Gogh and the realization that none of his compatriots would leave France for the exotic destinations that he continually fantasized about, Gauguin became fixated on a newer and even more remote destination, Tahiti. Again, he held out for a major sale and a large check that would get him out of France. He had maintained this fantasy for decades, but this time his growing reputation and a newspaper article published the day before a planned sale at the prestigious auction house at the Hotel Drouot ensured that his paintings would generate a substantial sum. In all, 30 paintings were sold on February 23, 1891, including Vision After the Sermon and the portrait Beautiful Angela, which was purchased by Degas. The sale generated close to 10,000 francs, which even after commissions would be more than enough to finance a trip to Polynesia. Not only would Gauguin leave behind his family in Denmark, he would also leave his pregnant mistress in Paris. He had attempted to conceal the results of the auction and would send his wife nothing. Ultimately, this duplicity would be the final indignity for Meta. Of her husband's departure to Tahiti, she would write in a letter to Schaffenecker, My heart is filled with bitterness that Paul could be so criminally selfish. I have never seen or heard of anything like it. Although Gauguin would still attempt to communicate with his wife by letter, he would never see Meta or their children again. Gauguin's arrival in Papaete, Tahiti, in June of 1891, was initially greeted with great fanfare. But then even the occasional ship from civilization caused a stir on this remote island, and Gauguin quickly faded from public view. 
He didn't mind. He had a substantial amount of money and expected even more from a Paris public benefit held to raise additional support. But after a few months in the colonial capital, Gauguin became predictably disillusioned with Papa Ete, which he considered already spoiled by European influence. He rented a hut 20 miles outside of the city in the village of Mataia. One of the justifications for Gauguin's journey was his desire to access what he expected to be a vast trove of Tahitian art, something that was inaccessible to any of his European contemporaries. But Gauguin would also find out quickly that Tahitians no longer produced the types of wooden and stone artifacts that interested him. In fact, any objects offered as souvenirs were imported from Europe or the United States. Even so, Gauguin was mostly quite happy in this location that at least had the coastal vistas of the ocean and stunning sunsets over the island of Morea. For companionship, he moved a 13-year-old local girl, Tehamana, into his hut, which he justified by believing he was adhering to local customs regarding promiscuity and that the natives would have been offended if he lived among them and didn't take up with one of them. This idyllic existence lasted for approximately 18 months. Despite the ability to live off the land for the first time in his life, Gauguin still spent a great deal on tobacco, Western-style meals cooked in Papa Ete, and alcohol, all luxuries in Tahiti. The fundraising benefit had been a bust. The dealers who had promised to sell his paintings didn't bother to even respond to his letters, much less send him any funds. Although he had been quite productive, painting over 50 paintings and carving numerous wooden sculptures, he came to believe that to receive appropriate payment, he would have to return to France and sell these works himself. His wife, Meta, sent him only three letters during his first stay on Tahiti. She had no use for him romantically or even personally, but she did let him know that she had finally been able to sell some of his early paintings in her possession. She felt fully justified in keeping the money for herself. In the summer of 1893, Gauguin was able to convince colonial authorities to repatriate him as he claimed to be destitute. His female companion was now pregnant with his child, but the child would be well cared for in his absence. He was sure of that. His native neighbors could not understand why he would leave. They had grown attached to the strangely charismatic foreigner. But leave he did, arriving back in France in August, a particularly poor time to return. Friends and potential benefactors would be scattered all over the continent. With only four francs to his name, he again desperately needed money. From nowhere, he got word that his uncle Isidore had died, Gauguin and his sister Marie, the only heirs. That Marie now lived with her husband in Colombia complicated the settlement of the estate, but at least now he could borrow substantial sums against this future asset. He got in touch with his mistress, Juliette, visiting his illegitimate daughter, already two years old. He spent 2,000 francs promoting an exhibit of his work at the prestigious Durand-Ruel Gallery, hoping that he would generate the same type of sales that occurred at the Hotel Drouot. But it didn't happen. Only 11 pictures were sold, half of these painted before he had even gone to Tahiti. Despite the financial failure of the exhibit, Gauguin became a prominent figure in the Parisian literary and artistic scene. His apartment, the site of weekly soirees, he lived lavishly, lent money to friends, and drank and smoked to excess. He painted a practically lascivious portrait of a mixed-race model, an alleged 13-year-old who would become known as Anna the Javanese, and then took the young girl, probably closer to 20 years old, as his lover. Dressed outrageously, accompanied by a monkey and a parakeet, the couple made quite a sight on the boulevards of the city. Gauguin was now spending his time attempting to write a book about his Tahitian adventures and working on the woodblock prints that would illustrate his work. As the spring of 1894 approached, he and much of his entourage decided to return to his former haunts in Brittany. Much had changed in Pontauvin, but the town had grown tolerant of such outlandish characters. 
The same could not be said of the nearby town of Concarneau, and when Gauguin, accompanied by his mistress, her monkey, and several other acolytes on May 25th, an inevitable clash of cultures occurred. Strolling along the town's harbor, the sight of Anna attracted the negative attention of a bunch of children. When one of these children began to throw rocks, a companion of Gauguin's, Armand Seguin, slapped the child. Unfortunately, the boy's father, a man named Sobin, witnessed the assault from a nearby tavern and responded by punching Seguin, who jumped into the water to escape further punishment. Gauguin is alleged to have counterattacked, knocking down Sobin and tossing two more local assailants into the water. At the height of this melee, another attacker kicked him in the shin, and the man's heavy clog shattered Gauguin's ankle. He fell to the ground as more locals poured out of the bars and proceeded to kick and beat him into unconsciousness. Gauguin was seriously injured, transported back to pont by wagon, and hospitalized. He would spend the next two months immobilized in a hotel room, coping with the pain of his injury with both morphine and alcohol. Anna quickly became bored and returned to Paris. Gauguin was determined to pursue a court case against both his attackers and a former innkeeper who had retained some of his paintings from an earlier stay in lieu of payment of his bill. She now correctly presumed them to be much more valuable and was refusing to return them. After sticking around Brittany until November, when these cases would be resolved, Gauguin got a token and unenforceable judgment against his Concarneau attackers and nothing from the innkeeper when the court ruled that he had never obtained a proper receipt for the work. He took the first train to Paris, where he was greeted with even worse news. Anna the Javanese had cleaned his apartment out of everything she could remove, including valuables, furniture, and artifacts from his trip to Tahiti. The only things she left behind were his paintings on the walls, perhaps meant to be an insulting commentary on their value. The violent incident at Concarneau and subsequent events solidified Gauguin's desire to return to Polynesia. He began a personal kind of garage sale of his possessions and paintings to try and raise money for the journey. Those he could not sell, he apportioned to various dealers in the hopes that they could do something with them in his absence. He packed anything that he felt he would need as he sensed he would never return to France. He avoided informing Meta of his plans. Her only previous responses to attempts to communicate were requests that he send money. Emile Bernard, embittered because he believed that Gauguin had expropriated many of his techniques and gotten much of the credit that was rightfully Bernard's, was now a very prominent critic and enemy, although when he contracted it has never been determined. Gauguin was also starting to exhibit the skin lesions and other symptoms of secondary syphilis. It was under this depressing confluence of circumstances that he left France in June of 1895. It was Gauguin's intent to settle on the remote Marquesas Islands, where he presumed he would be able to access some of the primitive art that Tahiti lacked. But instead, he found a beautiful spot on the western coast in Puna Oia, rented it, and built a hut to live in. He went in search of his first mistress, Tejana, but she was now officially married, and she refused to live with him. Not to worry, Gauguin settled down with another 14-year-old named Payora, who would bear him two children of which one would survive. But life in the tropics soon returned to a predictable pattern. No income, and now serious health issues, which would send him to the hospital for treatment, however primitive. Typically, this revolved around the application of morphine or some other painkiller. Gauguin's deteriorating health affected his productivity, but he still would produce some of his greatest works during this time period, especially two Tahitian women, now in the permanent collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the allegorical, Where Do We Come From?, what are we? Where are we going? That is now in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. 
but these and other works that he sent back to Paris sold for tiny amounts if they sold at all. April of 1897 brought him even more grim news when his wife sent him a brief note informing him of the sudden death from pneumonia of his 19-year-old daughter, Aileen. Gauguin had clung to the fantasy that his daughter might eventually move to Tahiti and take care of him, which made this especially bitter news. When the owner of his plot of land died, the heir sold it, forcing him to find another place to live. He was able to convince bankers and Papa Ete to actually lend him a thousand francs by convincing them that another plot of land had agricultural potential. He also built both a studio and a home and got himself in further debt to the builders. When his birthday passed on June 7th without word from his wife or his family, he finally responded to Meta with a letter that concluded, May your conscience sleep to prevent you welcoming death as a deliverance. Neither Meta or Gauguin's children ever responded, and Gauguin never wrote to his wife again. Gauguin claimed in a letter that he had unsuccessfully attempted suicide in December of 1897. While this may have been merely another attempt to generate sympathy and cash will never be known, but his dire straits certainly made the scenario believable. Things grew so bad that Gauguin would ultimately be forced to take up a menial civil service position as a draftsman for the public works department in Papaete. His pay, six francs a day. His status was now barely above that of the laborers he was involved with, no longer the brash professional artist of independent means. French society on the island snubbed him accordingly. Even his mistress left him, tired of living in poverty. Nevertheless, in 1898, he scraped together all of his completed works, including Where Do We Come From? He despaired, acknowledging in a letter to a friend that he could no longer even afford to paint anymore. I seem condemned to live when I have lost all moral reasons for living. Ironically, it was at this point that opinions about Gauguin's work began to change. His latest installment from Tahiti was placed on display in a gallery and was the critical success of the winner, especially the remarkable Where Do We Come From? But Gauguin's isolation allowed the gallery owner to buy the whole lot for a thousand francs, a purchase which infuriated the painter who knew the canvases were worth much more. But what could he do? At least he could afford to quit his public works job and return to his home and his pregnant mistress in Puna'awea. At this point, Gauguin turned his attention to writing a memoir of sorts and contributing to a local newspaper. Most of his journalism consisted of diatribes against whatever local official he believed had slighted him. His financial situation improved with the news that the same dealer who had taken advantage of him was now willing to pay a monthly guarantee for any new work. Other canvases sold, and he became solvent enough to again consider moving to the Marquesas. But his health had deteriorated to the point that no amount of money could improve his chronically unpleasant condition. He sold his hut in Puna'awea for a considerable profit, said goodbye to his mistress, and moved to the village of Atuona on the island of Hivaoa in the Marquesas. But even in this remote location, Westerners had already preceded him. Any decent land on the island was already owned by the Catholic Church. In fact, Gauguin would need permission from the local Catholic prelate, Bishop Martin, to make any kind of real estate purchase and even be overcharged for the privilege. He got his revenge by decorating his hut with scandalously symbolic depictions of the bishop and by conducting an active social life with numerous willing female islanders. He got to work on the canvases that he had promised and he began work on a kind of memoir entitled Before and After, it was really a collection of musings and journal entries about his life, mostly self-serving. Of course, he took up with a third of his teenage island mistresses, who would also bear him a child. By 1902, Gauguin wrote to a close friend, George de Montfried, who had stood by him and helped him financially. 
He mused that maybe he should return to Europe, if not France, perhaps Spain. De Montfried discouraged him by replying that his legend of going native for the sake of his art was spreading. In a few years, the prices of his paintings would soar, and he was to be a part of art history. Returning to civilization would only diminish this lofty sacrifice. That probably was not much solace to Gauguin, who knew he would never live to see this predicted affirmation of his genius. Early 1903 found him completely isolated. Any Europeans in his community dismissed him as a disagreeable degenerate. The natives were too intimidated by the colonial hierarchy to interact with him. His repulsive physical condition prevented any meaningful interaction with the young women who had formerly entertained him at night. He embroiled himself in the colonial politics of the region to the extent that he was eventually fined and sentenced to brief imprisonment for libeling a government official, avoiding imprisonment by filing what would be a lengthy appeal. To assuage his now extreme physical pain, he began to administer morphine via syringe. In his final months, his only official contact was with a Protestant missionary, Paul Vernier, who had some medical training and was at least sympathetic enough to occasionally look in on him. On the morning of March 8, 1903, Gauguin's native servant ran to the Protestant mission to tell Vernier that Gauguin was dead. When he hurried to the hut that Gauguin had officially named the House of Pleasure, he was confronted by Gauguin's body, as well as the bishop and two other Catholic priests. These officials were zealously intent on having the last word in death with a man who in life they literally described as, quote, an enemy of God and everything that is decent, unquote. Their revenge would consist of burying him immediately without service in the local Catholic cemetery. Officially, Gauguin died of a heart attack. His death could have been the result of several issues, including an overdose. An empty container of morphine was found at his bedside. His 54-year-old body may have merely given out after a life of excess, abuse, disease, and external stress. At least at the end, he was spared another painful revelation regarding his family. His son Clovis had previously died from an infection following an operation in 1900. Mehta had written Emil Schuffenecker with news of this development, but as Schuff was deeply depressed over his own divorce and sensed, probably correctly, that Mehta meant him to send this news only to induce sadness and guilt, he refused to forward the information to Gauguin. He never interacted with either of them again. Mehta would live for another 20 years, witnessing the remarkable posthumous ascent of her husband's artistic star. Her only concern during this process was to attempt to acquire whatever money she could, the inheritance to which she felt entitled. She died in 1920, having successfully raised her three surviving children. In February 2015, it was quietly announced that a Swiss art dealer had sold a Gauguin painting to a member of the Qatari royal family for a record price of $300 million. As a member of a group of impressionist painters who endured an existence of deprivation and critical indifference, one wonders what Paul Gauguin would have thought of one of his paintings generating this kind of appreciation and his inability to receive appropriate compensation. Most likely he would have deeply resented being the object of such karmic ridicule that, considering how he had conducted his life, he profoundly deserved. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Paul Gauguin. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Paul Gauguin, A Life by David Sweetman, Gauguin by Henri Perichaud, and Gauguin in the South Seas by Bengt Danielson. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. 
If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.